We're going to spend a few moments now opening up God's Word together. And if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn in them to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, right in the middle of your Bible. We'll get there in just a moment. But, you know, when you're in a social setting, whether you're at a party or a function or whatever it is, and you're chatting with someone, there is one question that will inevitably come up. The question is this, what do you do? What do you do? Now I'll be honest, when I'm asked that question, I get a little bit nervous. (laughs) When you tell someone that you're a pastor or a reverend or a minister or whatever it is, it conjures up all different kinds of thoughts and assumptions. Now I could say what one minister said when a, a lady at an airport asked him this very question. He replied and he said, well, I work for a global organisation. We've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. We've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. We do marriage work. We've got feeding programs, educational programs, social programs. We do all sorts of justice and reconciliation work. Basically, we look after people from birth to death and we deal in the area of behavioural alteration. To which the lady replied, wow, what's it called? He said, it's called the church. Have you heard of it? Now I could say that, but I don't. Or I haven't yet, maybe one day. I normally just say I'm a pastor, I work for a church. And when I say that, I get all different kinds of responses. Some people will apologise for swearing just a moment ago, (laughs) which is always funny to me. Some people will smile, nod and back away slowly, which I understand. I mean, no one wants to hang out with the pastor at a party. Some will be genuinely confused about what that means and what that involves. But there's one response that I always find interesting. Some people, when they find out that I'm a pastor, they will very quickly tell me they went to church when they were a kid. And even though they don't really go to church anymore, they don't really pray or read the Bible or anything like that, they still believe. They'll say something like, well, I don't go to church anymore, Pastor, but I still believe in God. Or I'm not practicing at the moment, but I still have a faith. And this kind of comment, I think, reflects a common attitude among Aussies. In fact, there was a study recently that revealed around 45% of Australians identify with Christianity. I think the census was around 52, so it's somewhere around one in two people in Australia identify with Christianity. This study went on to reveal that only 15% of those 45 said that they attended church once a month. Once a month. And then of that 7%, of that, only 7% said they were actively involved in a church or actively engaged in their faith. This phenomenon could be called many different things, dead religion, cultural Christianity, Christian atheism, I mean, call it what you want. It's essentially the idea that we can believe in God, but live our lives as if he doesn't really exist. And let's be honest, this is not just an issue for others, this is also an issue for many of us. For some of us, we'd say that we believe in God, we know God. But if we're honest, it's mostly second-hand knowledge. It's mostly based on what others say about God or what others say to God. 
Some of us, we would say that we believe in God, we know God, but it's mainly from our memories. We've truly experienced his goodness, his grace, his love in the past. But over time, that experience has faded and we've drifted. The truth is, if we're not careful, we can all find ourselves in a position where externally it looks like we have a relationship with God. We attend church, we give, we serve, we have well-behaved kids. But internally, we do not enjoy the reality of relationship with God. Now let me be really honest with you. This is not just a temptation for churchgoers. This is a temptation for church leaders as well. I see this temptation in myself. The temptation to study the Bible because I have to preach it but then not read it for my personal devotion. Or the temptation to pray from the platform, but then not pray in my bedroom or in my office when no one else is looking. We all face this temptation. It's so easy to say that we believe in God, but then live as if he doesn't exist. And this is why we're launching into a new sermon series today called Awake and Alive, Enjoying the Presence of God. For the next six weeks, we are going on a journey to come alive to God, to reawaken, to revive, to deepen our relationship with God. And we're doing this series because every single one of us needs it. We can all grow closer to God and we can all grow deeper in our relationship with God. We're also doing this series because the Bible tells us to. The Bible again and again invites us into the possibility of an intimate relationship with God. The Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The Bible says in Acts 17, God is not far from any one of us. Jesus said, we looked at these words a couple of weeks ago, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. David, Old Testament David, he said about his relationship with God, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And I've got to tell you, after I eat fat and rich food, my soul is satisfied. (laughs) David's talking here about his relationship with God. He says, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The Bible again and again invites us into the possibility of intimate relationship with God. And this is not the experience or an experience that is reserved for the spiritual elite. This is a universal possibility for all believers. Now maybe you're thinking, well, I I believe in God. Isn't that enough? I mean, a lot of people around me don't believe in God, but I do. Isn't that what God wants from me? That's a fair question. But the answer is that mere belief isn't all that God wants from us. The Bible says that the demons, even the demons believe in God. And yet they tremble because they know that they're relationally separated from him. There's more to Christianity than just intellectual belief. And we're doing this series to explore what that more is. Because we need more of God in our lives, 
in our church and in our community. The good news is that God is not hiding from us. Nor is God holding out on us. If we've become dull or sleepy or insensitive to God, then God can revive us and reawaken us once again. Now let me be clear about what I mean when I talk about being awake and alive to God. I don't have in mind a a spectacular, overwhelming kind of experience. Now it might be that, but that is not how God most often works in our lives. To be awake and alive to God means to be sensitive to God. It means to be made aware of Him in your day-to-day life. This is why to be alive to God is not kind of something that you tick off your to-do list. Well, I've done that for the day, tick, move on. No, it is God being real to you in the midst of everything else on your to-do list. John Calvin, the great reformer, he talked about his daily life, or he spoke of his daily life, as doing business with God. Whatever else Calvin was doing in his life, and he was doing a lot if you read about his life, deep down in his heart he was aware of God. Martin Luther, uh, again, the reformer, he spoke of living his life as Coram Deo, a Latin phrase which literally means before the face of God, in the presence of God. Now these two men were great theologians, great thinkers, great intellectuals, but to them, God was not just a theory. And we don't want God to just be a theory to us either. We want to know the living God who is with us at all times. Ray Ortland is a, a pastor in the States who I listen to a lot. He says this. He says, when we're alive to God, everything good gets traction. But when we're not alive to God, everything becomes tedious. So we're asking him to open new doors to us so that he becomes non-ignorable. We become light-hearted and free and brave. Our fellowship and our music and our gatherings become electrified with his presence. And this church makes an impact to the ends of the earth and to the tenth generation in evangelism, justice, reconciliation, education, child-rearing, the arts, government, scholarship, philanthropy, creativity, everything. Life is in Christ. In Him fully. In Him only. And He loves to give Himself away. I love that. And that is my prayer for us in the coming weeks as we embark on this journey to become awake and alive to God. Now this journey will take us into the book of Psalms. The Psalms are a collection of songs and poems that are right in the middle of the Bible. And really there is no better place in the Bible to come alive to God. Tremper Longman, which is a a great name, he's a a scholar, he's written a little book called How to Read the Psalms. He writes this, he says, as we read the Psalms, we are entering into the sanctuary, the place where God meets men and women in a special way. We will see that the conversation between God and his people is direct, intense, intimate and above all, honest. The Psalms are a great place to lead us into an open, honest, intimate relationship with God. And we're going to begin today by looking at Psalm 50. 
Because Psalm 50 tells us what God really wants from us. Psalm 50 gives us our first step in coming alive to God. Now in Psalm 50, what we see there is a courtroom scene. And in this psalm, God is the judge. And he has called his people before him to judge them. He is there to judge his people. He's calling them to account for their dead religion. And he's calling them to something better. Let me read Psalm 50 for us. Hopefully you've found it by now in your Bibles. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, unfortunately it won't be on the screen, but you can listen as I read Psalm 50 for us. Beginning in verse 1. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Now we see three key insights in this psalm that we're going to look at briefly. Three key insights. We see two things that God does not want from us and then we see the one thing that God does want from us. Firstly, the first thing that God does not want from us is heartless routine. In verses 8 to 13, God brings the first charge against his people. And it has to do with the sacrifices that they're offering at the temple. You see, in that day, the people of God would bring animal sacrifices and burnt offerings to the temple and they would offer them to God. Now, the problem was not the sacrificial system. 
God doesn't rebuke them for bringing sacrifices. We see that in verse 8. No, no, as we see in the following verses, God's problem was their attitude towards the sacrifices. They were bringing them in a purely formal and external manner. They thought to themselves, well, this is just one of the things we have to do as religious people. This is what we have to do to to keep God happy and to keep ourselves in his good books. What was worse, they thought the sacrifices they were bringing, that they were of benefit to God. That's why God tells them in verses 9 to 12, hang on a minute, I already own everything. You're not bringing anything to me that I don't already own. And so, in other words, when they show up to worship God, they're not thinking, I feel so blessed to worship God today. They're thinking, God is blessed that I showed up today. The problem, in other words, is not that they had grown slack in worship. The problem was that they had grown cold and heartless in their worship. It had become dry and mechanical and ritualistic. And let's be honest enough to admit that this is still a problem today for the people of God. I mean, let's ask ourselves the question, why do we come to church? Why do we gather to worship? Is there any part of us that feels like, well, I've got to come to do my duty, tick that off the list, but then once it's done, I can go and do what I really want to do? Is there any part of us that feels like we are doing God a favour By showing up to church, by giving at church, by serving at church. Now God's really lucky to have me on his team. This kind of attitude is indicative of heartless worship. And it's desperately dangerous. One commentator says, Empty formalism in worship imperils our souls, precisely because it promotes a false relationship with the Lord. Anyone who thinks themselves to be right with God simply because they are physically present for worship is dangerously deluded. We need to examine what's going on in our hearts, the motivation of our hearts, the condition of our hearts. Now don't hear this the wrong way. This psalm is not warning us or or warning us off devoted regular church attendance. If you're a believer, God wants you to gather together with other believers week in, week out. The Bible's clear about this. But God doesn't want you to just go through the motions. God wants you to be clear why you gather. And it's not to earn his favour. It's not because God needs you. It's to open up your heart to God, to his people, to worship him, to know him, to be changed by him. To serve him by serving others. Now these people in Psalm 50 have forgotten this truth. Their worship has become dry, ritualistic and mechanical. And this is the first charge that God brings against his people. This first thing that he does not want. He does not want heartless routine. But then in verses 16 to 22, God brings his second charge against his people. Which shows us the second thing that God does not want. God does not want hardened hypocrisy. Now up until this point, God has addressed people who who basically meant well. You know, they offered their sacrifices, but they'd kind of forgotten why. Their worship had just become a bit dry and, and routine. But now, God addresses another group 
among his people. We see it in verse 16. But to the wicked, God says. God now addresses the wicked. Now notice, these are not people who want nothing to do with God. They're not atheists. In fact, they're church people. They recite the law of God. They take his covenant on their lips. They talk about God. They talk about theology and morality and and ethics and so forth. So what's the problem? Why does God describe them in this way? Verse 17. For you hate discipline. You don't want to change. And you cast my words behind you. To put it simply, these people talk about God but don't know God. They discuss God's law but don't obey God's law. When they break God's law, they're not cut to the heart. The word of God has absolutely no bearing on their life. In short, they're hypocrites. Now Jesus said about hypocrites in Matthew 15, he said, they draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In other words, they believe in God. They might even come to church. They might send their kids to Christian school. They tick the Christian box on the census. But they don't really care about God. They don't listen to what God says. They don't obey God. They're not cut to the heart when they break God's law. In fact, they openly and knowingly disobey God. That's what we were told in verses 18 to 20. Jump in with thieves and they slander and gossip and and cut others down with their words. Now, I want to make something very, very clear for all of us. A hypocrite is not a Christian who sins, but then confesses, repents, and runs to Christ. A hypocrite is someone who claims to be a Christian, but when they sin, they don't care. There's no repentance, no turning to God, no desire for change. There's just the desire to not get caught. This is why I've used the word hardened in the heading. This is someone who only cares about external appearances, but pays no attention to their heart and their interior life with God. Now, why would someone do this? What would lead someone to live in this way? We see it in verse 21. These things you have done, God says, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Because God has done nothing to expose or to strike them down yet, because God has remained silent so far, these people assume that God doesn't really care about what they're doing. That he's unconcerned with their hypocrisy. So they just keep on doing what they're doing. I was listening to David Bowie's Space Oddity album this week and on the album there's a song called God Knows I'm Good. He sings, he says, God knows I'm good, God knows I'm good, God may look the other way today. Now these hypocrites are living under the assumption that God is looking the other way today. And this is how it often works for us as well. When we sin consciously, we kind of expect something to happen to us. Maybe we've read the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, how they lied to the Holy Spirit and were then struck dead. And we imagine that because we've done a certain thing, then God will strike us or do something to us. 
But then nothing happens. So we begin to think, well, if God didn't strike me now, then maybe he won't strike at all. Maybe he doesn't really care. It's kind of like when you say to your child, if you do that again, I'm going to punish you. Then they do it again and you don't punish them. Maybe you get distracted or talked out of it or whatever it is. But that failure to follow through emboldens that child to do it again. They think, well, maybe mum and dad aren't really serious about what they say. Maybe I can get away with it again. Maybe I can get away with even more. And sometimes we think the same thing about God. It doesn't really matter. God doesn't seem to care. God's love, all's well. But it's a mistake. Because God's not like us. God is different to us. He's just and righteous and holy and eternal and without change. And he knows all about us, every thought and action. Hebrews 4, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Maybe even David Bowie knew this to be true. The end of that song that I was talking about, he says, God knows I'm good, God knows I'm good. Surely God won't look the other way. This is the teaching of the Bible from beginning to end. But these people in Psalm 50 have forgotten this truth. Now what about you? Have you forgotten this truth? Are there things in your life that nobody else knows about? Friend, God knows. God knows all about our hidden, unconfessed sin and he's calling on us today to get honest before him. Not because he wants to embarrass us. Because he wants to heal us. And here's the warning that God gives to hardened hypocrites. He says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But here's the promise that God gives to all of us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I know this isn't easy to talk about, but it's so important. It's so necessary. Because if we are going to come alive to God, we need to be honest with God. We need to get real with God. And we need to know what God does not want from us. And he does not want heartless routine or hardened hypocrisy. Which leaves us with the question, well, what does God want from us? We see it in verses 14 to 15. God wants wholehearted worship. Let me read these verses again. He says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. What's the promise? I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. To put it simply, God wants your heart. There's nothing that you and I can give to God that he does not already own. But there's one thing that he does ask of us. Our hearts. Ourselves. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 12 when he was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He replied, he said, you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. God wants your mind, your heart, your strength, your soul. In short, God wants you. And this is the first step in coming alive to God. It's not about what we have. God wants our hearts. He wants us. Have you come to him? Have you surrendered to God? Have you realised your utter and absolute dependence upon him? Maybe this is your first time in church and, and you've never bowed your knee to God. Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time, but you've slipped into heartless ritual and routine. Oh, friends, today is the day to get honest and real before God. Maybe you've been walking in darkness for a long time. You've been hiding what's really going on in your life. Today is the day to get real with God. And God says if we get real with him, he's not afraid of what we might confess to him. He already sees, he already knows. And if we get real with him, he will freely show us his salvation. Verse 23, look at how this psalm ends. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Now to order your way rightly does not mean to live perfectly. It means to be honest with God. To have a right view of God and a right view of yourself. In fact, to illustrate it, let me tell you a story that Jesus told while he was on earth. It's a story about two men. One of them is a religious leader. He was wealthy, respected, well looked up to. There's another man, a, a tax collector. He was despised by his countrymen. He was an outsider. Both of these men go to the temple to pray. The religious leader steps forward and says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now the tax collector standing at the back of the room, maybe he heard what the religious leader just said in his prayer. He's so ashamed he can't even look up. He can't look up to heaven. But he manages to mumble, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God heard him because Jesus said, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, the one who mumbled, says rather than the other, went home justified before God in a right relationship with God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is how we come alive to God. We become so aware of his goodness, his greatness, his majesty, his love and our smallness and sinfulness and insignificance that we get low before him and we say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God says, my child, I have already done exactly that. I sent my only son into the world to deliver you. I even sent him to death upon a cross. 
I laid your sin and your heartlessness and your hypocrisy upon him. He received the punishment that you deserved. So you can receive the life and the forgiveness and the love that you have not earned. This is my salvation and I am freely giving it to you. Believe it, receive it and walk in it for the rest of your life. Imagine what God might do through a people and a church who were so aware of his goodness, his greatness, his love that we walk in deep humility before him. Let's find out together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, there are some of your children here this morning who have slipped into heartless routine. And Lord, we don't want to live that way. We know that there is more for us. And so we just confess that this morning. We repent of that. We bring it to you. And we want to draw near to you this morning. Lord, there's others of your children here this morning who have slipped into hardened hypocrisy. We've been walking in the darkness where where no one else knows what's really going on. But you do. And we want to be honest with you this morning, Lord. Nothing else matters but us getting real and honest before you, Lord. And so we just take a moment now to do that. You lay before the Lord what is on your heart. that promise that if you confess your sin he is faithful and just to forgive you and purify you from all unrighteousness some of us are going to take a new step this morning into a deeper relationship with God Heavenly Father thank you that you love us thank you that you've sent Jesus who went to the cross pay the penalty for all of our darkness, all of our hypocrisy, all of our heartlessness, so that we might walk awake, alive, renewed in your presence, fullness of joy, the fruit of your spirit, so that we might be the people that you are calling us to be, Lord, awake and alive. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand before we sing? We're going we're to close with these words from Psalm 105. Now, if you would like to pray with someone this morning, I'm going to be down here after the service. I would love to pray with you. Hear these words from Psalm 105. I give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praise.